Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. Good morning. This is Terry Wickstrom, and we have got a full show for you today. In studio with me today is Brad Peterson. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, Terry. We had a lot of ground. You know, it's that time of the year. we got a lot of ground to cover. We're going to talk some upland game hunting when the Colorado Clays people come on, and they have an event coming up where you can win a few turkeys before Thanksgiving. We're going to talk some waterfall hunting. I mean, big game hunting is still going on. I don't know if we're going to cover it much because I think anybody that's hunting is out there already. But yeah. but there's um, a lot of fishing. We're, we're, we're getting into some of the great fall fishing, and we're, we're not that far away from ice fishing. It's hard to decide what to do. Oh, it it is. It's a great time of year, and this year we're lucky because, like you said, we're we've got great upland bird numbers. The waterfowl are just starting to get here, so we're right starting to be at the peak in the peak of the fall fishing season. We've got a lot of things that are fantastic right now. We do, and we're going to cover a lot of them today, folks. So you know, stick around, and uh, we'll probably cover your favorite outdoor activity today. Brad and I are going to cover them. Plus, we'll be joined by. Parks and Wildlife, they've got some special things going on they want to tell us about. So we're going to have a jam-packed show. Brad, uh, one of the things I love about the fall this time of the year is I don't hunt as much as I used to anymore. And I kind of had to choose how much time I spend on the water versus picking up a shotgun or a rifle or a bow. And I love hunting, but I just really have gravitated to fish more. And this time of the year, we're getting into some great bites. You have to know a little bit about what you're doing to take advantage of them. But the water isn't crowded. You know, the boat ramps and the front range are probably open for another month and Pueblo all winter. The rivers, uh, everything, uh, a lot of these avid anglers have put their gear away for the year or they're hunters and they're out in the field. Oh, that's right. You know, I was out at Boyd earlier this week and it was 8 o'clock before the first other before there was another boat on the water. So that's that's fantastic when you're able to have that much time with such little pressure on the water, and the bite's fantastic. Well, and that less pressure on the fish, too, so they don't move around quite as much. And I've been hearing from both you and some other sources that Boyd is really fishing well. Now, Matt Ensley's from Tightline is going to join us later in the show. We'll probably talk a little more about the, front, uh, the metro reservoirs for walleyes, but this is a great time of the year to... Uh, Fish for Walleyes, Tom Bruno, which you and I were talking about earlier, him and I did a, a piece for In Fisherman Magazine years and years ago. That ended up being in the Critical Concepts Walleye Fishing on Spooning down at, at Pueblo this time of the year. Charlie Black, last year around this time sometime, caught a state record blue catfish, I believe, yep. uh, jigging. And this cold water, it's a different way of fishing. A lot of people struggle now because they go back to maybe where they were throwing a jig before, and you can catch some fish on jigs, but it's a little tougher. Or they go, and they're fishing mostly in the wrong places. That's the big thing. The fish this time of year really start to get concentrated in small areas. So you really need to be targeting those areas and using your electronics to be fishing fish and structure that's holding fish as opposed to just kind of in the summer months where those fish may be spread out over big flats and you can cover a lot of water and catch fish. If you're doing that, you may be spending a lot of time fishing areas that don't have any fish in them. So electronics become a big key for this time of year. Well, and typically the concentrations of fish, not always, but typically are in deeper structure right now as the water's cooling. What was the water temperature on Boyd? In the morning, it was 
about 48 degrees. By the time I left, about noon, it had got back up to 50. And that's the surface temperature, obviously. And so that's the warmest water in the lake right now until it gets below 40. Um, And uh, did you find the fish mostly constant? We're we're talking walleyes. But you know you went after other fish, too. Did you... where did you find the fish, maybe by the different species? I was going fishing. So I, I, I was targeting whatever fish wanted to bite. I just I had a week and a half, hadn't been out on the water. I just wanted to catch something. So I knew that this time of year, like we talked about, uh, deep structure is the key. So I went and looked at three or four spots with deep structure, and spots that normally hold fish were pretty barren. And finally, uh, on the fourth spot, I marked a good school of fish, with some bait nearby, and it was on a a steep break, uh, kind of a point that comes up. The top was in about 14 feet of water. The fish were down in that 16 to 19 feet range, and then it drops down into about 30 right there. On that given spot, I caught uh, quite a few white bass, including two master anglers, so that's over a 17-inch uh, white bass. I caught uh, five or six smallmouth, two smallmouth that went 18 inches, and then um, caught a limit of walleyes on top of that. So there's a bunch of fish all mixed together, just finding the right piece of structure is the key. Well, and it's pretty common because typically what's bunching those fish together is bait. And there's a shad base. And a lot of the lakes in the Front Range of Colorado are shad-based. When those shad get stressed as that water cools, they bunch up in a big ball. And the fish tend to hang around those big balls of fish because they become easy prey and they can eat. Just it's almost like a trout that becomes focused on a hatch of mayflies or something, and they don't want anything else. And that's what makes it also, even when you find them, a little tougher to fish for them because uh, you have to change your approach a little, don't you? You do. The the typical patterns that maybe you've been using most of the summer with uh, jigging or, or trolling crankbaits aren't going to be nearly as effective, especially when you're looking at trolling because the fish are so tight. You may catch fish when you go through there, but by the time you turn back around and get back over that small pot of fish, you've, you've spent a lot of time, wasted time there. So in the fall, I like going to vertical jigging presentations or, or heavy baits. Um, all the fish, I, not all the fish, almost all the fish I caught were on jigging wraps. I caught a few on spoons as well. Um, I know one of our mutual friends, Dan Swanson, has been out catching fish on blade baits. Um, I tried blade baits uh, without any luck. But this time of year, those are the three baits that I'm going to spend most of my time with. Me personally, I'm going to start with a jig and wrap. That's the one I've got the most confidence in. I know other people will start with a spoon and and be very successful or, you know, maybe one of the other manufacturer style of, of glide baits. Yeah, but, uh, you've got the... Johnny Darter and the Puppet Minnow and a number of others. You know, there's a couple things going on. You're right. You can put on a jig with uh, a soft plastic or a a gulp. I like gulp this time of the year, Um, a gulp minnow. Or you can... um, you can put live bait on a jig head like a minnow, and that can be a really effective way this time of the year also. But you spend a lot of time getting back down to bottom, especially with live bait. And you, if you're using live bait, you tend to rip it off the hook a lot when you're jigging down that deep. So the the reaction-type baits that you fish vertically instead of horizontally have really come into their own. And if you go back in the 90s, when I was writing a bunch of articles for In Fisherman Magazine, I wrote an article about uh, spooning on Pueblo Reservoir with Tom Bruno, 
and that thing just took off. I mean, people just got excited. We had used a spoon called the flea fly spoon, and they got orders from 26 states after that article ran because people had a tough time believing that that piece of metal would catch fish. And I think it was after the spooning really took off again in the 90s that we saw the blade bait come back into its own. It had kind of lost its glamour. It wasn't as sexy anymore. You can go back to the 60s when I think it was the Sonic Hedden or whatever, whatever yep. it was. Or back then and when the blade baits. And they came back. Now there's a number of manufacturers making those. But over the last, oh, maybe 10 years, a lot of the tournament anglers especially – have been using the glide baits, but they weren't as vocal about it. They were catching a lot of fish. And making a lot of money. And making a lot of money. And they weren't as vocal, and they weren't letting the general public in on it. But eventually, you know, those things leak out. Somebody tells somebody, somebody tells somebody. Now, I think everybody up and down the front range here is fishing glide baits, at least when the water gets cold. I Yeah, it's it's really come on, you know, in probably the last five years that it's really been known in the general fishing public. Right. And the nice thing about it is it's effective both vertical and you can cast it horizontal. Um, I don't cast it. I, I usually flip it more just to get it out a little way. So I'm covering a little bit bigger area. Um, you know, maybe I'm flipping it out 30 feet or so from the side. And that way you're kind of covering a, a larger area because I'm usually on spot lock on my electric motor um, fishing this time of year. And it's it's a fun way to fish. It's there's little nuances that do make a difference with it, but you can give most people one of these baits, show them the basics on how to raise and lower, you know, make sure that, that the bait is falling on slack line, which is key so that it gets the proper action. And uh I've found in the fishing that I do, as long as it's not real rocky, I want to make sure that, that bait hits the bottom. I think that when it hits the bottom, you get a little bit of a puff of some of the bottom debris, and I think that added sound helps attract some of the fish. And when you get a bite going, when the bite bass were going, I was spending more time fighting fish and unhooking them than I actually was fishing. It For about 30 minutes there, I bet you when I got the, the jig and wrap to the bottom, I didn't jig it more than 10 times without having another fish on. Well, and, and that's another thing about this kind of fishing is that it will um, it, it, it will go, it'd be streaky. You'll yes. find a pot of fish, and whether you're spooning blade bait or a glide bait, and all of a sudden the bite's on. And that's why those types of lures are also really effective because you can get them back down to bottom so quick. And you're getting more of a reaction strike. These fish are keyed in on these stressed shad, and that spoon fluttering that glide bait that looks like a minnow with its circular action and its swimming action but it's quick fall and the and then the blade baits the same thing trigger an instinctive almost a reaction more than a feeding bite and i think that's why uh, typically you they outfish they outfish even jigs with live bait this time of the year and this bite isn't going to slow down i mean there's going to be days that's better than others and spots that are better than others, but it's going to continue right through ice. Oh, it is. And, and Terry, you mentioned something that's really important. When you said you'll find schools of fish and all of a sudden they'll become active. If I find a school of fish in a location and I don't get them to bite right away, 
I will go back to them later in the day because you never know what's going to trigger them and, and when all of a sudden that, that school's going to become active. So I usually, you know, maybe I'll find two or three schools of fish or pods of fish in, in the day, and one of them might be active in the morning, one may be a little more active midday, and one I may not be able to get to bite. But if you keep moving around, you might be able to get the, the action going. And once you get it going, getting that reaction strike, having two or three people in the boat even helps because that keeps lures down there, keeps that school excited, and seems like that bit, that bite continues even longer. Well, and a couple things, too. is One, don't do a lot of fishing if you're not seeing anything on your electronics because you'll wear your arm out. This is physical fishing. You're taking heavier lures. You're pumping them. You're working them. So do that and, and stay on them. But... Don't be afraid to fish these baits. I think the number one thing is people, they see all the sexy crankbaits or they fish with live bait or see the soft plastics that are sent in so realistic. You have to fish these enough to get confidence in them. That That's very true. I, I would say the best, this is a great time of year to build confidence in them. And one of the best ways, we always talk about it, once you find, I, I like to have rods rigged with a couple different options, whether it's a number nine and number seven jig and wrap, maybe one of the new uh, flat jigs, uh, a spoon, and a blade bait. And if there's one that's new and maybe I'm not as confident with, if I get on a, a spot and I'm getting two or, I catch two or three fish quick and maybe someone else in the boat catches a couple, I'm going to grab that bait that I don't have quite as much confidence in and drop it down when I know the bite's going and catch a few fish to start building that confidence. Now if the bite starts slowing, I'm going to go back to the bait that I've got confidence in to feel like, to know that I'm truly fishing and, and effectively fishing that area. Then I find another school of fish, you know, then I'll try that new bait and, and build up that confidence level. This is a great time of year to do that because when the bite gets going, you're going to catch a lot of fish and you can build confidence in a new lure real quick. And we've got to take a break here and we've got some other things coming up. But the other thing too is exactly what you experienced. It's not uncommon to catch multiple species. Smallmouth will be in the same area. Walleyes will be in wipers and white bass like you, even crappies at yeah. times, even crappies at times. Hey, we're going to take a quick time out and we're going to come back and talk about shooting ranges here in Colorado. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you by the Great folks at Honey Smoked Fish Company, their smoked salmon is off the charts. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sun Power Sports, Colorado's largest ATV and motorcycle dealer. You'll find them located at 88th and Washington, but take 84th to Pearl. Just go north, you'll run into their huge five-acre campus. Let's go right to the phones. And joining me from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Jim Guthrie. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, great to have you. And by the way, I've got Brad Peterson in the studio with me. Brad's an avid hunter and shooter, so it really fits into our conversation. You and I talked earlier in the week, and, you know, I, everybody I think that listens to this show knows that I'm an avid shooter, and, and I, I've done a lot of hunting, and so I love to get out and practice. And something, and when I was younger growing up, we used to go plinking with our 22s. I grew up in northern Minnesota. You'd find a safe spot with a hillside out in the woods, and you'd, you'd plink with the 22s. The opportunity to practice just out in open land or to go plinking with a 22 is getting more and more limited as more development uh, comes into the area and also as... As more rec people are out recreating on the same properties, and becomes uh, it can become unsafe, and we're seeing that as that's an issue that's been going on for quite a while now, isn't it? 
Yeah, it's uh, there was a couple years ago, uh, CPW tried to find a site for a mega range, and we looked all over the Denver metro area, kind of trying to hit that balance between accessibility and, um, uh, you know, having to deal with the noise issues, and it was difficult. And uh, luckily, we're making some headway now on smaller ranges, uh, so that's, that's kind of how we're handling it. But you're right, it's uh, between the forest service lands to the west and uh you know just the growth of the metro area it's it's getting harder and harder no it really is and a lot of people love just to plink or recreationally shoot or get ready for hunting or even practice with with a self-defense uh firearm and this program we're going to talk about now you guys are putting a grant program out where you're giving grants to put in shooting ranges i looked at the maps you sent me all over the state i think there's something like 60 of them so there's going to be one close to virtually everybody there now are these are these grants when you put these projects in are they are they a combination of parks and wildlife and partners or and both is that how it works it's um the the maps you've got in this program are just uh, they're non CPW grants, so they're the independent ranges or new ranges that are going in, maybe put in by the county or a town. Uh, we do have put some money into our separate ranges. I mean, our CPW owned ranges. Um, uh, you know, there are some famous ones like Byers Canyon or or the Chafee County range. Uh, so they're kind of two separate pots of money, uh, but this one is specifically for um, kind of independent or uh, non non CPW ranges. So where does the money come from to fund these? Does it come from our excise taxes? Because this isn't out of the general fund of the state, and it isn't out of necessarily hunting licenses, right? Uh, correct. It's from the excise tax on ammunition and firearms and. A slice of that uh, goes. We've set aside for uh, shooting range improvements, and that's it. It's ranged from about two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year up to as high as six hundred thousand. Right now, it's about five hundred thousand. So, it's a pretty big investment. It's been going on. We've been doing this program for nine years. Um, so, there's we've put a lot of money into um, beefing up ranges, addressing safety issues, building new ones. Um, and I, th- I think it's been really interesting to work on. Well, I think it's fantastic to have these resources available. Um, are, they vary. They're not. They all don't have the same amenities and the same structure to them, do they? No, no. There's some uh, small clubs. Um, it's really basic, but that's all they need and that's all they want. And in some ways, that's all they can afford to kind of own and maintain. Uh, there are some other ones more recently that we've worked with up in Logan County might be a good example up in Sterling. And there's a big range up there. The counties are very actively involved with it. And that's got, um, you know, uh, handguns and rifle ranges and long distance ranges. And they're putting in um, skeet and trap fields and they're beefing up their archery range. So it's a whole variety. And they have a, uh, they're going to have a, um, a kind of a clubhouse uh, type area. That's not quite the right term for it, but uh, so that one's pretty well developed, and that's that's a really nice range. Now these ranges um, are. My understanding is, if you give a grant to help with these ranges, there has to be public access to it. Is that right? Absolutely. And Logan County, just as an example, or uh, most of them, it's completely open to the public. 
Um, like I said, some of these we're working with clubs, and there are varying rules, but we always require public access in some form. Uh, for some of the clubs, they have a hard time providing a huge amount because they're liability issues and they need some, they just want to make sure that someone out there is treating the range correctly. Um, but it's, it's always a requirement that, that there's public access, um, as in, as a trade for the gram in essence. Now there's different types of ranges. Some will I think you told me earlier in the week we'll not even have an attendant. Most probably will have some type of an attendant. Attendant. There's probably different hours and probably the ability, like the one in Sterling with the long range, that's not going to be available in a lot of places. But um, there's probably some that do handguns, some that do rifles, some that do shotguns. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, it's a whole mixture of of what's going to be available at each uh, site. And you're right. It it depends on the range and the layout and what can they do safely. And in the Sterling one, they can do a 400-yard range. And uh, there's another one where hopefully construction will start next year um, near Idaho Springs called uh, Devil's Nose. It's on Forest Service land. They're limited uh, to – they're going to try to put in a 200-yard range, um, but more likely it'll just be a 100-yard range, and that's because of the exact site where they are and – they were happy to find a site in that area where they could actually put a range. And there's a lot of work that's going into making that um, a functioning range. And like I say, next next summer they should be working on it. I think they're aiming to finish it up in the fall. Now, the maps you sent me show me both some that are open and some that I think are in development or are about to open this year or have. Right. Um, are those maps available to the public? Because you've got ranges put in virtually – and all over the state, so people don't necessarily have to drive a long ways to take advantage of them. Is there a way to find these ranges? Are those maps on the website or something? We do have the uh, map uh, on our website of the ranges that we've helped fund. There's also another link. Uh, we have a map to uh, ranges in general. There are a lot we have not uh, provided any funding for. Hopefully, you know, if they can come in and ask if they um, have a need. Uh, but there's a lot that that are not covered under this grant program, and we do have a link to those. And I think it covers, I would guess, 90%. I, I know there's a couple missing, but that'll really cover, that'll give you a good idea of what's available. Well, and the shooting sports have been a, an important heritage, both through hunting and just recreational shooting and, and self-defense in this in this country. And having safe, available places to do some shooting, I think, is just a tremendous, tremendous asset to the state and to the people here. It allows it to be done in a safe environment where it can be enjoyed properly and, and we can bring other people into the sport in a safe way. Jim, any last comments? Uh, no, I appreciate being on here. If um, I would encourage any listeners who are members of clubs that are, you know, why haven't Let's get a better uh, classroom. Let's uh, improve the the berms at the um, at the range. To look us up on our website, and we'd be happy to talk to you. All right, thanks, Jim. Okay, thank you, Jim Guthrie with uh, Parks and Wildlife. You know, Brad, the places to go shooting. We just need more because they're just we're losing access to public lands. It's just not available. Well, that's it. And the other thing is, you know, we're trying to get more kids and new people involved in the sports. And it's great to have the opportunity to go to these places that provide safe environments nearby that you can practice your shooting. 
Yep. We're out of t- we're out over time in this segment, and I know that uh, Mary McCormick is waiting in the line. To, she does every time this every year this time of the year, so she can tell me about the Bighorn Sheep Festival. So we'll take a time out, and we come back. We'll talk about Bighorn Sheep. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's premier outfitter. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, America's premier outfitter. We're going to go right to the phones because she's been, I hope, patiently waiting to tell us about this event that's coming up. And we've got Mary McCormick from Parks and Wildlife. Good morning, Mary. Hi, Terry. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It must. Uh, by the way, Brad Peterson's in studio with me, so if you hear another voice, chime in. It's <laughs> it's it's uh, he's here. Um, yeah, I talked to you earlier in the week, and I said I thought I was getting old. Uh, time is really going by. It's been a year already. It has been. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing how fast time goes. Now, this is an event that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that's the Bighorn Horn Sheep Festival up in up in Georgetown. Tell us about it. That is correct. Well. Uh, so every the second Saturday in November every year we host or with the town of Georgetown and the historic uh, Georgetown folks up there uh, the Georgetown Bighorn Sheep Festival and one of the big reasons why we have that this festival in Georgetown is this time of year of course um, there's a couple of things happening it's getting a little colder so the sheep are moving down in elevation, so they're a little bit more visible. Most people who drive I-70 uh, probably have seen sheep along the side of the road, so uh, they're pretty visible this time of year from Georgetown. And it's also the rut, so this is uh, when the males are competing with each other, uh, what we call the clash, when they're, you know, hitting their heads together to try to win the uh, opportunity to mate with the females. So it's kind of a, a double whammy this time of year of, of how um, exciting it can be in Georgetown to see the bighorn sheep. So we have this festival with the town and with the historic Georgetown folks to help people see sheep. We have volunteers throughout town with spotting scopes and binoculars. Um, we have kids activities, music, food, um, all kinds of different things for people of all ages to really uh, celebrate our state animal. Well, we'll talk a little more about the event, but let's talk a little bit about the bighorn sheep. First of all, what sure. a spectacular animal. It is our, our state mammal. Um, our, my understanding is we have a fairly robust population. It's been well managed and we're doing well. Is that the feedback you get? Yeah, that is very true. I mean, we have probably one of the largest populations of Rocky Mountain, and it's the Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep that that we're celebrating in Colorado. There's also the desert bighorn, but the Rocky Mountain bighorn is our native species, our state uh, mammal, like you said, and um, and their populations are doing you know really well in Georgetown. There's roughly around 250 um, animals in that particular herd, and uh, they're, you know, as far as I have know, they're doing really well. But, you know, we always like to let people know that they are very susceptible to disease. So um, that's why it's so important with domestic sheep and domestic other livestock. I mean, if 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 wild sheep were to come into contact with any kind of disease that those animals carry, it could wipe out the entire herd. So we always ask people if you ever see dom- domestic animals where wild sheep are to please let us know as soon as possible because that could devastate the entire population. But luckily, we don't see that very often, and and the population looks pretty good. And we do have limited hunting by draw for bighorn sheep, which is considered an incredible trophy. 
Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I'm fortunate. I live in Fort Collins. I drive up to Rocky Mountain National Park quite a bit. And, I'll, I, you know, I bet you every other trip almost I'll see some sheep along the highway there. And it's just amazing to watch them on the edges of the cliffs and on the rock ledges and see them jumping. I mean, if, if people have never seen a bighorn sheep in the wild moving around the ledges, it's just stunning, isn't it? It's pretty spectacular. Yeah, they ha- actually have kind of a, um, you know, they have like a split hoof and like this kind of spongy material on on the bottom of their hoof that help them grip those different edges and the, you know, cracks in the rocks that they, and they, they can navigate those rocks pretty much immediately. Once the lambs are born, they're pretty much born to run around and, and scamper up and down uh, these rock and cliff faces. So, uh, it's a pretty spectacular site, and that's why Georgetown is such a great location because people can see see some of those behaviors right on the side of the road. And again, with spotting scopes and binoculars, you can get a pretty good view of all of that. Well, and another spectacular is two rams during the rut going after each other, <laughs> butting heads. That's uh, that's uh, I mean, it echoes through the canyons. It's it's incredible. Yeah. It's such it's one of the most, you know, maybe next to an elk bugle might be one of the most magnificent um, sounds that you can hear in uh, Colorado nature is the sound of two rams clashing. It's, it's you, If it's, you know, on a clear day, you can hear it probably about a mile away is how loud that sound can travel. And if you think about they're both carrying about 30 pounds of horn on their head and they come at each other about 20 miles per hour and that's a lot of force <laughs> oh it's just incredible at each other yeah let's talk a little more about the festival again real quick and it's next weekend yes it's next saturday um it goes from 10 o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon um and is it easy to find when you get up to georgetown how do you it, is it right off it the... is. I, yeah i think the best place to probably start is at the georgetown visitor center which i think a lot of people are familiar with as they've traveled up and down i-70 and um, the visitor center and the folks there have been major partners um, um that are major partners with us in this event and so they have a big like sheep display in the visitor center um, they'll have programs and things there we'll actually have an archery range if weather holds out for us we'll have an archery range right outside the visitor center so people can experience that um, and then the rest of the activities are really in downtown georgetown so um, that's where the kids activities are they'll be um, our local wildlife officer will be i think at one o'clock will be giving a talk on the local uh, herd in georgetown so if people are interested in learning more about that local population he'll be presenting there um, we have another presentation around i want to say 10 o'clock on living with wildlife um so a lot of education presentations kids activities and really one of the highlights is at 11:30 we do the bighorn sheep hokey pokey that you can learn <laughs> about bighorn sheep behavior while doing the hokey pokey <laughs> that sounds tremendous and you know while you can never guarantee that you'll see a bighorn sheep. You're going to have viewing opportunities, many of them, and both alongside the road possibly and with scopes and with spotting scopes and binoculars. So if you do come up and get a chance to see one, you'll find yourself up there looking for them other times. Uh, Mary, thank you so much for joining us. I hope the event is a great hit as it always is. Thanks, Terry. I forgot just really quick. Also, the Georgetown Loop Railroad is running during the festival. So if people are interested in that, there's a cost associated with that, but that's also a fun thing for families. So 
Um, we just hope everyone can come out and join us. I think we'll have a fun time this year. Sounds like a lot going on, a great place for families. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Terry. You bet. Terry Wicksham Outdoors is brought to you in part by Sportsman's Warehouse, the America's premier outfitter. Terry Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoked Fish Company, Smoked Salmon. The secret is in the fire. In studio with me is Brad Peterson. And Brad, um, before we get to our next topic, we got Matt Ensley coming on in a while to talk about cold water walleye fishing, which we touched on a little bit, a multi-species up at Boyd, but really want to get in depth with um, with um I just want to get in depth with Matt because I know he's been probably on the local lakes. But you you were just recently uh, at an event up in Minnesota. Um, a good friend of yours, Al Linder, an acquaintance of mine, somebody we both know him forever, I think, you know. Um, he saw a need for people who want to work in the outdoor industry that there's such a – they just don't understand how to get started. So this was kind of his brainchild. So he partnered with you and who else? And you put this on. Um, Troy and Don Lindner were all part of the kind of the planning group. Um, this was is tied in in conjunction with some of the camp fish stuff that we've talked about before, as far as trying to educate people about the fishing industry. But what Al saw, and I think Terry talking to you, you see the same thing: is you get a lot of people come up to you and say, "How do I get a job in the fishing industry?" And there's so many different ways. So what Al did is come together, and we all worked on it to create a fishing career workshop. And in this one day workshop, we had people from the DNR or CPW here in Colorado, um, uh, retailers, sales reps. We had Seth fighter, a BASS tournament pro, um, Tom Newstrom, someone we both know who's a, a guide up in the area along with, uh, Mark Fisher with Rapala talking about lure designs. And each one of them took some time to talk about how they got into the industry, talk about their story. Uh, Tom Newstrom's story is absolutely phenomenal. He was a he was a cop who actually got shot on the job, and decided in Chicago and decided that he uh, he probably wanted to move away from Chicago. Went up to northern Minnesota, took a a job as a, a county sheriff there, but then started guiding and and ended up now as a full time guide. And so they shared their story, but also talked with people about how do you get into these various careers? What skill sets, you know, what are some of the connections? What are some of the things you should look at doing? It was a fantastic event. We actually had one participant fly all the way from Colorado. He'd been laid off uh, a week and a half ago at his job and decided, you know what? I'm done working in the oil field. I could always fall back on that, but I want to go chase my passion and go to the learn about the fishing industry. So he flew up and in talking with him, he said it was an absolutely great opportunity to learn about, you know, what are the different angles and, and how do you go about getting into the industry? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, I come from a generation that it was forced on us. We couldn't, know, but, but I mean, it was, uh, yeah, we all find different ways into the industry. And I was a tournament fisherman and a writer for years and then TV and radio, and now I, I'm still writing. I write a column for the Denver Post. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, people, you know, a lot of youngsters, especially sitting in their couch, they look at the tournament anglers, and that was represented at your um, workshop. But that's probably one of the toughest ways to make a living. Oh, it, it is. And I'll tell you the one thing that Seth Fighter said that you heard the whole room go, oh. <gasps> was he said it costs a bare minimum of $75,000 
just to fish the six BASS Elite events. So if you don't have sponsors, if you're not established, you can't count on winnings. You know, what you count on, well, let's touch on that for a minute because that's kind of was my path into the industry. Um, you develop sponsors, but if you didn't have sponsors, you couldn't count on winnings to pay the way. Um, you'd, you'd spend more than you'd make to be a professional fisherman. That's not a good economic solution. But um, So the key to a lot of the media-type things that I've been involved in, whether it's been tournament, but more even the writing, the TV, the radio, is being a good ambassador to the sport, representing manufacturers and retailers and knowing that you can bring them value and that you can make the needle move on their products. That's, that's a key, but those aren't the only jobs. I know you touched, you touched on being in the retail business in the fishing industry. We've got a lot of that around here in Colorado. You touched about working for manufacturers. I think you said Rapala and Daya where we're both there. Yeah. And you also have sales reps as well who may be independent, you know, not, they may represent a various company, but they don't actually work for them. That's another way into it. And it just was, we we had 30 youth there, and one of the big goals was just to say, hey, it isn't just the tournament angle that gets you into the fishing industry. There's a whole lot of other ways to create a career inside the fishing industry. And one of the things that you just mentioned that was real common among most of the people there is whether it was tournament fishing or guiding or um, working as a sales rep who ended up getting a job working for an individual company. Um, a lot of people had many different avenues and aspects of the industry that they had touched over their career before they got to their position that they're currently in. Well, and, uh, you know, and then, of course, we didn't even touch on, you said, uh, the DNR in Minnesota, which is the the counterpart to our uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. And there's not only the state wildlife agencies that can provide careers, but there's county and city parks, and there's so many entities that have outdoor careers. But like you said, people, now we're going to be out of time, we're going to have to go, but people, most of the people work in the outdoor industries because they have a passion for it. I'm not going to tell you you're going to become a millionaire overnight working in the outdoor industry, but if your passion is the outdoors, it allows you to work at a job that involves your passion, and that's what really makes it appealing. So how successful was the event, and are there more coming? We were hoping to get 50 people we thought would be a successful event at this event, being a first-time event doing it. We had over 100 paid people attend the event. It was beyond our wildest imagination of how good this event turned on or turned out. So I will tell you that coming up in 2018, we're already in discussions about a few additional events. Um, one of the speakers had a real strong interest, and so we're looking at doing one that maybe we tweak just a little bit um, and put more of an emphasis in that area. But um, we're also looking at taking it outside the Minnesota area, and there's a good chance we may be seeing one here within uh, a few hundred miles of the Denver metro area. So I think the best thing for people to do is to stay tuned and go to mycampfish.com, keep, an, keep up to date on there. Um, I'm doing updates at uh, Brad Peterson Outdoors on Facebook when the new announcements come up. And, and the other thing we got going on is uh, this summer with Camp Fish, we're doing an advanced bass session for the high school age kids. We're doing another adult child session. 
and we're bringing back youth sessions this summer, and all that information's on the website. And as we move along, we'll certainly have you back on the show and keep people posted because I think these are great, great events. So that's, you know, so kind of stay tuned here, folks. We're going to let you know about maybe how you can get a career in the outdoors and camp fish if you want to learn some fishing basics or even advanced techniques. Some of the best anglers in the world will be showing up to fish there. Terry Wicks from Outdoors is brought to you in part by Honey Smoke Fish Company's Smoke Salmon. The secret is in the fire.